This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money. Yes, it's our special Sunday mailbag edition. Special, not because it's rare, not because it's unusual, not even because we do it differently, just because it's Sunday. It's mailbag. So it's special. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me, as always, in the specialist special mailbag podcast of the week, at least of Sunday, at least for Motley Fool Money, Dr. Nibar Mahadzi. How are you, Doc? Good, Matt. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Mate, oh, I, I, again, we'll pull back the curtain. We're recording this on Thursday. And you know what? Weather's always different in different places. And not only that, it's Thursday rather than Sunday. But it is a spectacular day today. I'm finally happy to see Sunday. summer's arrived in the Southern Highlands of New South Wales. So I'm pretty happy. I'm feeling pretty good. Plus, I'm spending time with you. We're doing a podcast. Does life get better than that? I don't know. But it could get better as soon as we get into the podcast. Oh, like, let's find we, out. As soon as, we, as soon as we do the questions. It depends on the questions. It's a beautiful seg. There yeah. you go, listeners. It's your fault if I have a terrible time over the next hour or so. <laughs> if I has a terrible time. If your fellow listeners have a terrible time too, then well, put it this way. If we lose listeners, I'm blaming you. First person I'm going to blame if they get this wrong is Chad. <laughs> Chad has a, well, not really a question actually, but an, an answer, which frankly doesn't really work with the format, but I'm going with it anyway because we love hearing from our listeners and Chad has some interesting thoughts on investing for kids. And we know it's been a really popular topic and we still haven't nailed an answer to this one yet, but we, we need to work on it. Anyway, Chad says, G'day Scott and Doc, a long time listener, first time submitter and a happy pro and now Motley Fool Platinum member. Chad, that's awesome. Thank you, mate. Um, Motley Fool Pro, you run, Doc. You run Pro 2.0 is the new one uh, with Kevin and Rhino. do a spectacular job there. That portfolio is going fantastically well, just quietly. Um, again, past performance, no guarantee for the legal eagles, but uh, going fantastically. Motley Fool Platinum if, is our everything service. Um, you can join Motley Fool Platinum and get access to every single Motley Fool Australia service, plus some regular member events. So if, you, if you're interested in Keen, it's not cheap, I'll, I'll say, um, but we think it's really good value in that the I mean, it's a spectacular value. Massive discount on buying the service individually, plus you get that live event stuff. So anyway, if you're keen, have a look. <laughs> Sorry about that, Chad. Just a quick ad there. Anyway, Chad says, love the work you and Doc bring each week. It helps pass the time on my morning runs. Thanks, Chad. He says, regarding the many questions you have had to do for kids with shares. He says, now, I am an accountant, dot, dot, dot. So being fully aware of the 66% tax rate is something I've been determined to avoid for my kids, nieces, and nephews on the shares I have bought for them over the years. I've set up one trust in which I hold all of these shares. I keep track of whose shares are what in my record keeping so it's clear as to who the shares are for. Until the kids are 18, I will just distribute and pay tax in my own name. At a future time, if any of the kids want the money, I will sell those shares and they will just have to pay the capital gains on it at that time. Also, once they turn 18, I can also just distribute the dividend to them for them to declare in their tax. This may not be for everybody, but it's what I do. Fool on Chad. Chad, that is a spectacular idea. I love that. Now, I'm a bit cranky just because I like to be cranky sometimes. You have to set up a trust. You have to manage. You have to report on it. It is a pain. You're an accountant, so that's good for you. For some of our listeners, that's extra cost, which is just crappy and look i don't actually blame the i blame the government for a lot of stuff of any stripe this one i don't blame them for that was a it was a response to stop people screwing with the system and you know frankly we as a society have have bought this on ourselves so i'm not going to blame the government for that one but um this seems like a pretty good idea if you've got particularly a few kids in that particular trust if the costs make sense a trust structure might for those listening just be sensible so I won't give tax advice, Doc. You won't give tax advice. Chad does for a quid, uh, but I can't give you his tax advice officially from us. So what I will say is if that's something that interests you, speak to your accountant about whether a trust would be a decent structure for you to do exactly what Chad's saying, which is you pay the income, uh, sorry, you distribute the income from the trust to yourself for the first little while. And then when the kids turn 18, 
you can actually transact on their behalf. That's a really cool idea, Chad. Thank you for that. Well, uh, I'm actually going to look at that myself. I'll see how that goes. Thank you, buddy. Really appreciate it. All right. Do you have any thoughts on that, Doc? Or we just- no, I think that's, cool. that's a, a nice comment. And, cool uh, idea, right? Yeah. All right. This one's from Chris. Chris says, Hi, Scott. I've enjoyed listening to your podcast with Doc for some time. I'm a current subscriber to the US Service Stock Advisor. I have a question for an upcoming podcast I hope you'll consider. He asks, do many ASX-listed companies have preferred shares within their capital structure similar to North American companies? Thanks, Chris. And Doc, you're a big fan of, of US companies. I don't imagine too many tech companies have pre- preference shares, do they? I, I'm not even sure aware of it. Uh, no. Like, I mean, you have these um, this convertible debt and stuff like that yeah, that yeah. is there, but I don't think... I think preferred shares are mostly used in insurance land and stuff like that, right? It's used in financials. It's yeah, it's, it's a, a really financials f- thing. It's a funny structure. Not not many companies. So the the direct answer is not many companies do it. Preferred shares are, in theory, a better class of share. They, in terms of the capital structure, without going too weird and wanky on our, on our terms here, um, debtors get paid first. So if you if you if you lend or oh, sorry, secure debtors. So if you here's what happens: if a company goes broke, <laughs> everyone lines up, and your position in that line depends very clearly on what sort of person you are related to that company. If you've given the company a mortgage, for example, on a property or some other asset, you go first. If you said, well, I'll give you some money, but if everything goes pear-shaped, I want the house, you go first. The next one is unsecured creditors. So they're the people who say, well, look, I lent you five grand. It wasn't really secured to anything, but you still owe me the five grand. If there's any money left after the secured creditors get their cash, then the unsecured creditors get that money back. After that is the shareholders. Now, as, uh, as Chris asks and Doc mentions, they can be multiple classes of share and a preferred shareholder ranks higher, in other words, first in that capital structure. And often there's deals on the preferred shares where, for example, the ordinary shareholders can't get a dividend if the preferred shareholders have been uh, not paid their dividend. Often preferred shares come with a set dividend percentage. You might say uh, there might be a 6% dividend preferred share or something where you get that regardless. And if you don't get the money, no one else gets any money either. So they kind of sit just above other shareholders, just behind other debtors. That's how kind of it works. Chris, not many Australian companies do it anymore here. Um, as Doc mentions, convertible shares sometimes, convertible de- debt to equity type structures. Australian banks, we'll have a question on this a bit later, um, often use things called capital notes or hybrid securities. So no, not really, mate. Um, I'm not a massive fan of them. I don't mind them, but it's, they're a bit of a they're a bit of a weird animal. I actually prefer hybrids, ironically, to preferred shares in that context, but not by a lot. I don't really like either of them necessarily. So there you go, Chris. You will struggle to find many. I'm sure there must be. I even can't think of an Australian company with preferred shares off the top of my head. So maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe well, the, maybe the banks have uh, hybrids. They have their hybrids, yeah, hybrids, but not so like just, formal preference shares as such. But hybrids are preferred, right? In the sense that they, they sit above the normal in the capital shares. Because they're considered debt that can be converted to yeah. equity. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So, that's I right. mean, in my mind, preferreds are basically another, like, I mean, there is a structure to yes. the way that's, yes. a, and yes. so it's maybe similar. I don't know. Mate, that's, but, that's, a, that's a better answer. There are yeah. other, there are other hot, more highly ranked security options in Australia. Yeah. Not, not strictly speaking, literally preferred shares, but other options if you want to go down that path. Yeah, but mostly for financials, right? Like, I mean, yes. I've not yes. seen other companies that correct, correct. do this. Yep. Yeah. Spot on. All right. Question from Michael. We'll get through this in a, a red knot stock. Let's try and keep it up. G'day, Scott. Question for the podcast. Love what you and the doc do. It's a must listen every week. Five stars. Good man, Michael. Now, doc, you know this company. I'm not sure how much you know about it, so let's go with it. I'm a long-term shareholder of Prometicus. And Mark says, thanks, Hidden Gems. Uh, I'm trying to understand the impact of the new AI accelerator product. What kind of potential do you guys see for this in the future? Thanks in advance, Mike. Do you know anything about that? So uh, I know of this company. I don't yep. follow this company very closely. 
Um, it's it's been a, a tremendous recommendation uh, yes. in Hidden Gems. Uh, you know, it's up like what almost tenfold, maybe mm-hmm. elevenfold. Mm-hmm. Um, a fantastic wreck. Was it your wreck? Was believe it or not. Oh, there I, we I go. Was working with it's a Scott well, Phillips. Wreck. I was I was officially in charge of the service. Claude Walker was working with us at the time, and so uh, it was Claude's idea. Uh, but it was our wreck at the time. Absolutely. So, um, yeah. So, uh, so so that's fantastic. Well, I, look, I here's the thing. I don't know specific to this product. Almost every company in the software space now has got some form of artificial intelligence, machine learning driven solution because, mm-hmm. well, I mean, that makes sense because you can mm-hmm. just, you know, that's one way to um, analyze data and make sense of data, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And you, you can make a lot more sense using standardized algorithms. Yeah. So uh, what does it specifically, so I, here's what I'd say. I'd not get specific super excited just because a company says AI for machine learning. <laughs> that's what they want you to do, mate. They want you to be excited. You're well, letting I, them I down. That's, that's what I'm saying. That, you know, let's not get too excited about it. Well, you know, but uh, at the same time, if the product yeah. is meaningful, product yeah. is adding value, then yeah. customers are likely to stick around. They're likely to pay more. Um, you know, more customers are likely to purchase the solution and all of those good things, right? So, I think you just need to watch for the company's performance. You know, if you can look at a demo of the product, look at the demo of the product and see mm-hmm. if it makes sense, you know, see what uh, users of the product are saying. Mm-hmm. And, and that's probably, you know, you, you basically some sense from the field yeah. uh, gives yeah. you an idea of whether or not the product or the new new version of the product or whatever it is, yeah. AI-driven product, is useful. <laughs> and and that's how I would look about, think about it. Mm-hmm. Right? I mm-hmm. haven't, Looked at this closely, so I don't have a view as such. No, I think that's right, mate. Look, I I would only add. I think I love your point about so the, two things. I love your point about the fact just because I I don't don't pay too much attention. That is absolutely the right thing to do. Please be super careful. Um, it can be a bit of a, a bit of a debacle if you're not going to get it right. That being said, um, the other thing we actually what we you want to take up and do is continue to innovate its product and using things like machine learning type opportunities or um, just simply smarter technology. Uh, to improve the way that it does its business, hopefully the accuracy of its tests or the this is not test in this case, but the um, the images that it provides, the way, the speed, the access, uh, maybe some sort of diagnostic, uh, pre-diagnostic kind of scan, uh, screening would be sensible. So we, we actually want companies to keep doing stuff. So yeah, I would I would <laughs> pretend it's not called AI accelerator. Pretend it's just called um, you know new next version of our software. That's pretty cool. Just don't pay overs for the, the fact of AI on the label. All right, question. This is it. Completely left, left field, uh, left left hand turn. Question from Ramadan who says, "Hello, I was wondering if I could ask a question with regards to my home loan, redraw versus offset, which would be better?" Now, Doc, you and I both have mortgages. Your thoughts on would you go for a redraw? And we can't give Ramadan specific advice, of course, as always with all of these questions. But would you go with a redraw or an offset? So, like, I've actually never had an account which is redrawnly, mm-hmm. but in theory, I think they're the same, right? Or at least in practice, because I mean, mm-hmm. effectively, what the offset account does is whatever money you have in the offset, it offsets yeah. the loan you have on your loan account, right? So you have two accounts and they minus out, and you basically charge interest on the difference. <laughs> yeah. So if you and redraw, in my mind, I mean, an account is the same thing as a loan account, which allows you to put more money in, yeah. which effectively reduces your principal yep. and therefore effectively reduces the interest you're paying. And the redraw is basically any amount excess that you've paid you can take it out correct uh you know up to a limit or i don't know yep. whatever it is depends yep. on the bank right yep. Yep. so in theory it seems the same yep. uh i don't know if there are any other fine point differences no, i think that's right look Ramon, i would well I, both is probably the easiest one um depending on what sort of charge you're being charged or interest penalty you got to pay for you know sometimes the basic accounts are cheaper than these ones given the choice 
what I like about offset is you're not reliant on the bank saying you can have the money. Because once the, once the money's been put into a loan, the bank doesn't have to continue to offer you the redraw facility. They can simply cancel it. And then you're stuck not being able to get the money back out. Now, that'd be a pretty crappy thing to do. But frankly, it has happened before and may happen again. So I would, I would always, personally, I would always prefer an offset than a redraw. Where I would like a redraw more though, and this is a personal, not, not for you personally, but as we talk about all of our listeners, if you're someone who can't manage an offset well. So the problem with offsets is they're always there. You can always go and grab 500 bucks, 1,000 bucks, five grand out of the, out of the offset. Um, it's, there's no penalty. It's just there as a, as a quasi savings account. If you've got to, you know, want to go on a holiday, no, I'll just grab it out of the offset. You, know, you want to you get you your couch? Well, let's get it off the offset. You know, new car? Well, let's use the offset. Now, you can do that with redraw as well, except redraw is a more formal process where you have to apply. The money's going to be come out. Normally, there's a limit to how often you can do it. Normally, you've got to pay a fee to do it. So in terms of psychological like behavioral biases, the nudge idea, redraws are kind of, you know, partly fenced off. Not entirely. You can get to it. But it's an extra extra hurdle, an extra barrier to go, oh, we could, oh, it's a redraw. We won't going to take money out of the redraw, remember? Oh, that's right. Okay, let's not do that. So I would generally go on offset for flexibility, but I would generally go redraw if you wanted to make sure you weren't tempted to tap the offset account to uh, to fund your lifestyle. Any more thoughts on that, Doc? Um, no, I, I think those are very valid points. So I have yeah. nothing to add to that. You're very kind. Thank you, mate. Question from a listener who prefers to remain anonymous. He even gave me his first name. I said, well, can we just use your first name? Nope. No, I'm a bit shy, he said. So that's okay. We won't use your name, sir. We will simply say, hey, Scott, really enjoy the podcast. Thanks for providing such a resource. A quick question for you and Doc. If you had to buy one to start a portfolio, would you go with, and the ASX codes are IOO or code NDQ? I'm a bit torn. Thanks, mate. And that comes from, well, I won't say who because I'm not allowed to. But thank you for your question, sir. Uh, Now, IOO is the iShares Global 100 ETF, so top 100 companies globally. NDQ is the NASDAQ 100, the top 100 non-financial companies on the NASDAQ Composite Exchange. Interesting combination, Doc. One is global, so multiple countries, multiple industries, broad spread. The other is, frankly, fishing where the fish are right now, the hottest of hot in the tech sector with the top 100 US-only tech companies. Now, as we said before, um, being US only listed doesn't mean you only got operations there. I would, I would hazard a guess, mate. That is it. Is it reasonable the top fifty companies on the Nasdaq might have more business outside the US than inside the US? I, I would almost say it's likely rather than not. I mean, US is big, but if I think about the the Googles, Amazons, Facebooks, Netflixes, I, I don't, Apple, I would almost say more of the business outside the US than inside the US at the moment. Yeah, like global yeah. right so the nasdaq 100 is basically truly global unless there's like you know, there's stuff inside nasdaq 100 which might not be which might be actually companies that are listed elsewhere that no, or, no, 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 not yeah, listed elsewhere. in the u.s yeah, but yeah. they're actually uh you know focused on certain relig- uh, regions right um and, and that is always possible so you've got an option to so i'll ask you for your preferred out of this one so iShares global 100 or nasdaq 100 so i'll ask you firstly for your preferred then i'll ask you whether that changes Based on the question, which is specifically saying, if you had to buy one to start a portfolio, would that change your view? So, firstly, the iShares Global 100 or the Nasdaq 100, which would you invest in? Well, I'll take the Nasdaq 100 largely because, again, it's it's a very well known index. Um, you know, the I think the Global 100 is a is a is a good one. As mm. there's a lot of overlap between, I would guess, between yeah. uh, the Nasdaq 100 and the Global 100. But I just uh, I like the Nasdaq 100 index gives you good exposure to mm-hmm. um, sort of mostly tech um, companies, big and small. Mm-hmm. 
what about if you're starting a portfolio? If you if you're buying the first thing to set a bedrock position for your portfolio, would you would you have a different view? No. So, like, I mean, I mean, if you're thinking of anybody starting a portfolio, I mean. You know, you get a piece of uh, Apple, you get a piece of Microsoft, you get a piece of Amazon, you get a piece of Alphabet, uh, you get a piece of, you know, Netflix. I mean, this is basically the A-list. You know, this is not just the A, this is the A-list of the A-list, right? <laughs> yeah. um, so I think, you know, in my mind, that's a, a perfect, like when NASDAQ 100 can be a perfect uh, core uh, holding for people. You know those people who and those people who don't want to, mm. uh, I guess, uh, look for individual ideas. I mean, you know, it looks like again many of these companies that I've just named are, you know, they've been fantastic. They've delivered fantastic returns until now, but you know they're still growing. Uh, you know they're innovating. You know they're basically in many ways just leading the world, right? And, you know, a lot of people are basically copying mm. them. So, mm. um, yeah, and then there's so many different ways in the, which these companies are you know evolving over time, right? Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. I have no issues with that. Again, I'm not that familiar with exactly what the Global 100 has. Um, but from a diversification point of view, NASDAQ 100 seems good because you get you know essentially global exposure. Um, from an innovation point of view, you get some of the most innovative companies on the planet. Mm-hmm. Um, you get balance sheets like, you know, there are very few balance sheets like these some of these companies. So I don't know. Like, I mean, Mm-hmm. You know, looks okay to me, and and with the index, the idea would be that you'd add to it mm-hmm. periodically, so yeah, right. so that's dollar right. cost average over time, and as the index moves up and down, the things shift in the index, mm-hmm. you get exposure to different things over time. So I think it seems like a good idea to me. Yeah, nice one, Doc. I'm I'm torn a little bit on this question. Uh, I think, as I said before, ETF has become. An over, not overused word, it's appropriately used, but it used to mean index fund, and now it means whatever managed fund put together and listed on a stock exchange. And that's not unfair because that is exchange traded fund, that's what it is, right? The problem is ETFs became a byword for index funds because they were the new word that everyone wanted to use, maybe even uh, deliberately and cynically by those who wanted to create more ETFs and trade on that on that lovely name, but I won't, I won't allege that just yet. Um, so what's I think what's worth thinking about it I, for me and you may disagree actually, Doc, but for me the Nasdaq ETF is a act is an active investment choice. In other words, you are saying even though it's diversified, even though it's a whole index, it's a very specific subset of U.S. businesses that you want to own. I own units in the Nasdaq ETF, so I'm not against that at all. But it's not the same as buying a passive, widely diversified, low cost index fund with the aim of maximizing your diversification and kind of getting a whole market approach in one fell swoop, right? It's, it's a bit more active. Now, it's not super active like, you know, buying a cybersecurity ETF that we were asked about last week, for example. So it's it's broader than that because it's tech, but it's still an active choice. You're still kind of saying, look, I think tech will beat non-tech in the US. Otherwise, I'd buy the US S&P 500, right? So we're making that choice. And again, I own that. So I'm, I'm absolutely, I am making that choice for sure. But I'm not saying it's a passive choice as a bedrock position in a portfolio. So when when it comes to the question, um, so who asked me the question that I can't name? Uh, you know, it's kind of one of the questions like, what are you looking for in that portfolio? If you're looking for broad you know, ETF exposure to a global set of companies as a, as a bedrock position, where you just want you literally just want low cost diversification, if that's the number one aim then I probably would go for NASDAQ. Actually, NASDAQ will beat that, by the way, but it may not. And so that's, again, why the active bit rather than passive. If your aim is to be passive and widely diversified, now, I'm going to throw a spanner in the works, Doc. I own this one. So I would go for VGS, the Vanguard World X Australia ETF, rather than the iShares one for a couple of reasons. One is it gives you broader diversification. 
Uh, and I think that's good. You get, you get more than just top 100 companies. And frankly, the winners of tomorrow will probably start to bubble up from companies 101 plus, right? Some of the big ones will keep growing, but you're not going to get a 10-bagger probably from the top five. You're more likely to get a 10-bagger from outside the top 100. So I would rather a larger group. And I'd go for the Vanguard X-Australia ETF. The other thing is Vanguard is a not-for-profit. is more likely over time to push fees down. Um, now I can't speak for iShares or BetaShares, the, the providers of those two individual um, ETFs that you, may, you asked about. But if, if I was going to go for broad-based, diversified, low cost, all that stuff, I'd always go Vanguard. And the Vanguard Index ETF, which is VGS, is the one I'd go for. That tracks the MSCI Global Index. Any last thoughts on that, Doc? No. Next one's from LC. <laughs> with, with, with probably one of the more innovative hashtags at the end of it. So stay tuned for this one. LC says, hi, Scott. <coughs> Excuse me. I know you've explained the concept of chess and HIN in your podcast recently. Now, chess is the computerized holding something, something, which all, not all actually, but Australian brokers can provide you with with specific uh, access, or not access, sorry, record keeping, that you specifically own those shares and that is independent of the broker. And HIN, which is a holder identification number. So let me get those out of the way. I know you've explained the concept of chess and HIN in your podcast recently. However, I have a silly question to ask. I currently have all of my holdings with Comsec, all under one HIN. I'm going to open a new account with SelfWealth. If I wish to keep all my current holdings with Comsec, i.e. not transfer them from Comsec to SelfWealth, will I need to have two HINs, i.e. one for Comsec and one for SelfWealth? Or can I have all my holdings under Comsec and SelfWealth under one HIN? If both options are possible, which do you recommend? What are the pros and cons of each option? Sorry for the convoluted question. Thanks for your time. Hashtag, all hashtags have been taken, so I give up making up one. <laughs> so I like that hashtag. Thank you, LC. That's a good one. Um, my understanding of this stock is reasonably straightforward, which is just that you the the hin is broker sponsored, in other words, individual broker sponsored. So you can't have a single hin split across two brokers. Is that that your understanding as well? You know what? I actually don't know the answer. To this one. <laughs> I was going to say it's uh, you know you can answer it. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's that's look. That's the answer as far as I know. Well, so unfortunately, you can't. They they are they are broker sponsored specifically. So the way chess works is you say I want Comsec to manage my uh, hin or I want self worth manage my hin. You can't split the hin across multiple brokers. So um, I, I can understand the value of wanting it wanting it one hin because it's just easier. Uh, but unfortunately, you're going to have to split that. Mate. Look, it's not a huge deal. Um, a little bit extra paperwork to do, which is a bit painful, but but should be relatively straightforward. Um, also worth, by the way, asking, you can also transfer, by the way, your Comsec holdings to SelfWealth, I'm pretty sure, as long as SelfWealth accept them. Um, and I, I imagine they probably do, but I could be wrong. So I, I, the question would probably be, why wouldn't you transfer your holdings across? Why would you want them separately? So if you are if you think SelfWealth's a better broker, I see no reason not to transfer them across, but that's up to you. Any more on that, Doc? No, I have nothing to add. Beauty. Question from Neppy, K-N-E-P-P-Y, Neppy. Hi, Scott. Hope all is going well. Just listened to your 4 October mailbag podcast. Excited to send you a message in relation to a question from Boise, who wanted to know if there were any non-SMSF alternatives to the ASX 200 only direct investment super options. Happy to inform there is at least one alternative. I was in the same boat as Boise and I almost started my own SMSF when I discovered there is a super fund that lets you buy any ASX listed company and companies listed on 16 foreign exchanges. That super is NetWealth Super Accelerator Plus. Since at least one fund is doing this, I'm pretty sure others will follow in due time. Full on. I think we've had that um, that message before. So, Nepi, thank you for adding to that. Uh, NetWealth Super Accelerator. As always, I have no issue with NetWealth either way, but just 
check the fees as always because often that extra capability comes with extra cost. Um, but if you're someone who wants that rather than an SMSF, it still may well be cheaper than starting your own super fund. So that might well be a very good alternative. Nebby finishes with a hashtag, and this is one for us, Doc. Hashtag get Doc and Scott on YouTube. So there you go. We could be YouTube stars if Nippy's right. That sounds very exciting. What do you reckon? You ready? Um, I'm I'm always ready. YouTube star. (laughs) Beautiful. All right. Now, next one. We're getting through this in a rat. That's how we are for time. We're doing pretty well here. Here we go. Christian from Jorge. Hi, Scott. Love the podcast. I would love the A-team's opinion on 5G networks. It appears to be severely undervalued is associated with a growing trend in cloud computing and generating increasing revenue while reducing their losses. Do you see a bright future ahead? Would love the doc's input. Thanks again, G. What do you reckon, Doc? 5G networks. Yeah, so I think we like the company. Um, and, you know, again, it's a smallish company, so you want to you want to bear that in mind. All, all small companies tend to be volatile, both on the upside and the downside. Um, you know, they go up faster than they probably should. They go down faster <laughs> yes, than yes, they yes. probably should. Yep. Um, and then, you know, as we always say, diversify. So, you know, never own one stock, you know, at least 15, maybe, you know, maybe 30, um, just to make sure that you're not, you know, beholden to one company, um, you know, doing well or yeah. not doing well, right? And, you know, so so those are the things, yeah. So, I mean, in, in general, uh, I think it's an interesting company to keep an eye on. Awesome. I um yeah look I I think that's that's your point about the the volatility is one that really kind of I'd I'd make um it's also one of those things where you got to be careful the trend itself is is being a is going to be profitable and b is going to be profitable for that particular company is it I want to say is it wireless wireless networks what's the name of the company there was a business, anyway remember when the internet of things was massive everyone was talking about it three five years ago something like that and there's a couple of Australian companies who were going to be the forefront of internet of things one business was going to put probably 3G chips back then whatever it was into every device all over the joint they're going to make a fortune and they never did and, and it's one of those things where the internet of things is real and connected devices is real and we'll have more and more of them connected by Wi-Fi and 3, 4, 5G 8G, 15G um, I mean again the theme is real the, the trend is real whether or not it can even generate cash for anybody, a la airlines, which just were at absolute have been and still are an absolute sink for investors' cash, um, or if they do, who the winners are going to be, that's a bigger deal. So to your point, mate, um, I'll only echo your point, which is say just be careful. By all means, if the trend feels real and you think the companies can make money, just make sure you work out all of those things, i.e., Will they grow? Will they scale? Can they make money? Um, I have no view on 5G networks directly itself. I'm, I'm not a business I know well enough. Um, also, by the way, be a little bit careful of a business that wants to label itself that, that with the same label as a trend because um, it's just an obvious decision. Right? Well, 5G is going to be big. I can buy 5G networks. That makes sense. Um, again, seems obvious, but if I was to be cynical, I won't talk about the 5G networks particularly. Um, but if I was going to, you know, remember all the companies that put .com after their names in 2000? They didn't do it because they really wanted you to really clearly understand what they want. They wanted you to think they were a tech company and push the share price up. So just be just be careful there. Um, but no specific you on 5G, unfortunately. Apologies for that. Question from Monica Doc. Hi there, Scott and Doc. Monica here. Had another question. We love questions from our listeners and particularly our female listeners. Thank you, Monica, for listening and for asking the question. She says, love the podcast. Thank you. And the banter. Have been listening to you guys for about a year now and a member of EO. Oh, dear. She says, Scott, are you guys going to run a podcast special for SA as I want to jump on board? I will, Monica. Thank you for asking. (laughs) Funny is that. I promise you I'm not related to Monica, Doc. In this time, uh, I've been able to add more to our investment portfolio by adjusting our supers to growth. I like that. Buying an ETF on bonds for our kids. Excellent. With Vanguard shares. 
I had dabbled a few years back by buying Medibank shares when they were listed. By listening to you guys doing some reading has made this year a growth in our portfolio. Nice one, Monica. Well done. So to my question, I've been watching Tesla over the past few months for a long-term investment, and there has been a vast increase in share price, and now it has been added to the S&P 500. What are your thoughts in a week where there has been a $100 US US dollar change in price? I read about a tech bubble, but wanted to hear your thoughts. Maybe more doc, because I know you have the shares. Thank you, Monica. That's very kind, I think. She says, thanks again. Enjoy the podcast and have learned so much. Take care, Monica. Doc, I don't know if you have a view on Tesla, but I have a sneaking suspicion you may possibly have a view somewhere down deep you haven't thought about for at least oh, 15 or 20 seconds. Um, I, 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 think, I think most of our listeners could probably answer for, for you, but I, but I, won't, I won't assume. Uh, Monica's worried about the big rise, but then the $100 change this week. Has it been a fall this week, I assume, so with everyone bending tech, or is it up again? Uh, Tesla just goes up. Up, okay, there you go. So, so it was expensive already. It's gone up another 100 bucks, mm-hmm. And she's thinking, oh, I like Tesla, but this feels a bit like a bubble. What should she think? Yeah, so a couple of different things, right? So, um, you know, the, there's an article that, um, well, there's some work we were doing. And, um, you know, so Kevin has written an article for Multiple Pro, which we'll, I think we're publishing it next week. But one of the things we were looking at is, is if you think about companies, then over the long term, companies basically um, should in some sense, assuming that you know they're priced sort of appropriately in the beginning, mm. and over the long term, their price should basically follow the tra- trajectory of either revenue growth or even better, gross profit growth, right? Right. Yep. right. And one of the interesting things with Tesla is, and, and this is, you know, everybody looks at the recent share price, and mm-hmm. this, this is a lot of anchoring that goes on, right? You look at the recent share price and it goes, oh, it has gone up. Surely it's a bubble, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> now, what people forget is between 2012 to 2018, mm. the share price actually had gone nowhere. Right. Right. Between, from its IPO until now, mm. the gross profits have grown by some 11,000%. That's a lot. Right. The share price in that same time period has only grown by 7,000%. <laughs> Those are still large numbers. Large numbers. So you're but, saying, so uh, let me let me take the thousands off there just for the fun of it. So you're saying that one of them's gone up 11 times, the other one's gone up seven times. So there's a meaningful distinction between the growth in the share price and the growth in the gross profit. Exactly. Right. And then the other thing is that in, you know, when I was going on and on about how people are being insanely stupid, mm-hmm. not, you know, thinking about Tesla, mm-hmm. the gap at that time between those two things was so enormous mm-hmm. that if you just thought about it for a second, you'd say, okay, this is mm-hmm. clearly wrong, right? So mm-hmm. this is, again, we talked about shorting. This is another case where um, there was an artificial pricing being created by shorting, right? And right, anybody right. who paid attention at that time, which I tried mm-hmm. to mention this to many people, that, you know, if you pay attention, if you look at this, you know, if you think about how rule-breaking companies are created, then this is a company that takes almost every box that you know it's got probably the most innovative leader that mm-hmm. exists on the planet today this guy can land rockets something that people <laughs> thought cannot be done that does is that. There's this nothing, is the same uh, person the, yeah, who sends astronauts yeah. back from american soil back yeah. to the you know space station and back yeah. right there's the same person who every astronaut say oh this is genius right so this this person who's behind this company is a genius mm-hmm. right and you can demonize the person for whatever ways you know you don't like his operation but this guy 
and it's got a good purpose. Mm. So if you think about it, company with a mission, which whose bottleneck is I can't find the best engineers, mm. you've got a purpose which says you can. I've got a company which wants to make the world a more sustainable place. Mm. You are going to attract the best of best people mm. because you have. You've got a charismatic leader who's actually taking things, getting things done, mm. right? And there was this big divergence that was clearly available at that point, which is, you know, well, uh, was, was there for anybody who wanted to look at it, right? And, and you know, I get it. Like, you know, it's a car company and all those debates, and maybe those debates can still be there. Uh, here's, I'm going to say something else. If you go to Twitter and you follow people who are uh, running the new FSD trials. FSD being? Being the full self-driving suite. Right. Um, so in the US, they've got a you know bunch of people who have got access to the latest software that nobody else has. So okay, they're right, beta right. testers. Okay, yeah. The stuff that that car is doing now, mm-hmm. I have not seen anybody write about that in mainstream media. Okay. Not a single article. Not a single article. Nobody knows about this. Right. Yet it's there all in the open. Because right. sometimes what happens in investing is there's an opportunity that's there in your face. You you just don't realize yeah, because yeah. you didn't look at it. You didn't want to do the hard work. Mm-hmm. Uh, or you just, in your mind, you clogged it that, well, this can't be true. Can't be, you know, mm-hmm. Self-driving can't happen. It's not going to happen for the next <laughs> five, ten years. Right. If you start with that assumption, right. then you have clouded your judgment by basically making a point that, well, it's going to happen in ten years. But mm-hmm. today, if I see what those cars are doing from these clips, mm-hmm. it looks to me in a couple of years it's going to happen. Right? So, I don't know. And I, to you, that's a that's a... That's, a reason for more buyers to choose a Tesla, or an opportunity for Tesla to do more things, or both. So, if you the tech, tech, I mean, tech's great in and of itself, but unless it has a benefit to the company, now obviously self-driving should be beneficial. How do you see that coming? Is it, is it more people go, okay, I wasn't going to buy one, man. If it does it, I'll buy it. Or is it like where, where's the benefit? So, to- so, the, so the way I look at Tesla is when you invest in a company like Tesla with a leader like Elon Musk, mm. I don't try to really think that hard of what the benefit is. Okay. I leave that job to Elon Musk. So then do. does it even matter? I guess it's probably the follow-up question. It, it, well, no, it matters as to me what matters is when I invest in companies like this, what matters is what is the degree of innovation and can I figure that right, out? Okay. If I can figure out that the degree of innovation is up there that nobody else right. is doing, okay, okay. monetization of that is probably the simplest thing. So it's not even about the tech itself. It's the, the, the it's innovation the, is proof of concept yes. that Tesla is doing cool things. Yeah, and that the right. fact that the monetization is going to happen because he's going to figure out a way to monetize it one right, way right, or the right. other. Maybe it's a completely different model that nobody has thought about, right? And that is fine, right? right. How that monetization is going to happen. Mm. But to me, it looks like there's a piece of software that's being written that you know, is probably solving one of the most challenging mm, mm. AI problems today. If you solve it, you have a way to monetize it. Mm that nobody else has. And therefore, you have a lot of opportunity and upside. So, I, I don't know. I personally own Tesla, a lot of it. Mm. Uh, I've not sold a single share. Okay. Um, and I, I still think that, you know, while the valuation gap uh, between those two yeah. metrics that I talked about, the, the single most important metric, as Kevin would say, is that, you know, there's no one metric as you know, to caveat <laughs> it. But if you are thinking about a metric, this is really one of those telling things that you can see that, you know, hyper growth, um, in mm. in cross profit should mm-hmm. really ultimately deliver hyper growth in share price. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, um, should you buy some? It's up to you. Um, but you're not you're not worried about the valuation. No, like I I'm not worried about valuation. Like I mean, here's the thing, right? The Tesla share price tomorrow could go. It's what five fifty maybe today. It can drop to two fifty. Right. It can, but that happens. Or could go to a thousand. 
What could go to thousand? Yeah. I don't know, right? Yeah, and and uh, right now there's some weird things happening because of the S&P adding yeah. uh, addition. Um, again, that is also all courtesy because of the shorting, mm. right? Um, but right now you think whether it's 200, 500 or 1,000, it's still worth buying. So is that I, fair? So I did it. I, uh, sometimes I do a rough behind the envelope calculation. Yep, okay. And my behind the envelope calculation, I was telling this to another of our analyst, Kate, I said, well, you know, by my rough calculation says $600 is a fair value. Okay, right. Right. So it has been undervalued for okay. such a long time okay. that it's just the price is still catching up in my view. So the price goes 700 Are you then not a buyer? And I'm not trying to lock you down, but I'm just trying to get your sense of like, you're not, you're not normally a valuation guy. So when you say 600 is fair value, is that is that kind of a, the maximum price? You're like, if it's over that, I probably the opportunity is not as big or I don't want to buy it? Or how do you think no, about I, that? I don't, I, no, so that's not how I think about these companies. I, okay. I look at it as if I am, if I didn't own a position mm-hmm. and I've, I thought, the valuation is this much and it should, you know, the share price is this much, I would actually go and buy, mm, mm. right? Lots. Um, right. I use that as a gauge to see whether or not the market right now, at least for my own position, I use that as a gauge to say, well, what is the market really trying to say here? Sometimes you want to think about what the market's actually thinking. Yeah, right. Okay. Right? Um, and I still think the market hasn't caught up and it's because all the bits and pieces of information the market can't digest or can't really think that all those things are possible. And, and the other thing I want to point out is what, my evaluation of 650 really relies on the current lines of business and just a normal right. yep. operating profit yep. on those lines of business. I am not I'm not including self-driving and other things that can happen because of self-driving in my computation. Right. right, right yep. So I don't know. Like I mean, yeah the same story with Amazon. People yeah, could have, when yeah. it was a $500 billion company, people thought, oh, how big can it get? Well, <laughs> yeah. it can get pretty big, yeah. right? And the same story with Apple. Some of the best companies just can compound for a long time. Um, and, and this is really hard for people to yeah. understand sometimes. But So I, 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 I got the answer, but I guess I'm just still... So is there a price Is there a, is there a price nearby where you would want people to buy Tesla? Is, you know, to put 650 to 700, kind of getting like... It's just too uncertain to be buying above six fifty. Is that kind of how you think about it, or you know, you won't necessarily be buying anymore. You might be, but for, for for Monica or someone else listening, they kind of think, well, okay, so we're getting close to that fair value. When it gets closer again, if we don't talk about it between now and then, uh, you're saying kind of just don't buy up to that point, or maybe the odds are in your favour. What would you think of six? Once we pass six fifty, does it change what our, our listeners should think about whether or not they should buy Tesla? Well, at six fifty, I'm saying it's fair value, right? right? So when I'm saying it's fair value, I think that it's going to still you should be able to get ten, twelve percent return from it. Fair value doesn't right. mean that you're not going to get twelve, you know, tell twelve, fifteen percent marketish kind of level. Well, that's more than what the banks are going to deliver you. So if you know, before buying that's any true. bank shares, I'd buy Tesla shares, right? Before yeah, buying, yeah, yeah. you know, the next uh, I don't know <laughs> insurance company, I would buy Tesla shares and all the other uh, companies I can think. So I mean, yeah, yeah. so I, I mean, as I've said before, right? I think the market, yeah. as defined by ASX two hundred, it's going to do five percent, six five and a half percent. If you want more than that, you can buy Tesla. Uh, so uh, it's it's as simple as that. Are you going to get a ten bagger? No, <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't think you're going to get a ten bagger. Uh, but I think you're going to get handy market beating returns. That's go. what I think. So um, again, it's all individual choices, you know, and you have to deal with the volatility that comes with that. So. Nice. There you go, Monica from the horse's mouth. Uh, six fifty about fair value, but even after that, you should still be able to get market beating returns. Um, <coughs> no, no promises, of course. Just all as always, always only our best best views, our best guesses. Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M.
Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Uh, Monica has another question though, Doc, because I, I do correspond after that, so thanks for the question. She says, no problem. I do have another question about EO, and I thought, well, give me your ask about EO. I have to ask it. In terms of the amount to invest in these smaller companies, would you recommend about $1,000 each? Thanks, Monica. So, Doc, some of our services give full portfolio guidance with you know allocations of percentages and amounts, all that kind of good stuff. EO and SA, so Extreme Opportunities and Share Advisor, they're our entry-level services. They're cheaper. We don't give full portfolio guides. We just simply say we expect this company to be a market beater or not. And when we think it's going to be a market beater and our best idea, we back it on the scorecard. How should she think about allocating cash? And again, we can't, Monica, tell you specifically. How should a member think about allocating cash to your Extreme Opportunities recommendations? You know, that's a, that's a great question. So, so to Monica, what I will say is that uh, I can't talk specifically about the thousand dollars, largely because mm. I don't know what the thousand dollar means mm. relative to your portfolio, right? Yeah. So, if the thousand dollars is four percent of your portfolio, mm. then it's different from the thousand dollars being one percent of your portfolio, point five percent of your portfolio, right? So, so that's that's the number one thing to think yeah, about: right. what percentage. So, it, let's it's better to think in terms of percentages, mm-hmm. right? Our sort of uh, like what we tell people yes. uh, when we make a recommendation is that you've the first one buy a small piece mm-hmm. and whenever a recommendation is out we say buy a small piece the large largely for the reason is if we like it lots we're going to re-recommend it mm-hmm. right or there's going to be best buys now um, that says okay you can buy this stock right at this right, in, in right, this right. company now at at this price and then you can add to it so if you if you if you think about it that way then mm-hmm. The usual sort of we would say is you know start making a position one percent maybe one to two percent maximum mm. and then you build from there mm. and a couple of reasons this works really well um, on EO you'd get a lot of volatility more volatility like I can promise you more volatility than you'd get on share share advisor right mm-hmm. just sheer size of companies are small the small companies move a lot a lot of things can go wrong a lot of things can go right right mm. and 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 because of that reason. What you want to do is you want to start small and then just see what's happening with the company, the company's execution, right? And if the company Mm, continues executing, you'll have plenty of opportunity to add, right? And never be afraid to add on good execution, even Mm -hmm. if the price is higher. Um, And and similarly, similarly be wary of adding on Mm. poor execution, Mm. even if the price is lower than where we recommended it, because typically that usually means that something is not right. Now, I'm not saying always use the share price as a guide, but use the execution. And typically the market's directional movement is actually okay. Mm. Might, you know, act up or down. The the magnitude might not be okay, but the directional movement typically tends to be okay because the market is quick to figure out, well, that is bad, right? Bad results. So therefore I'm going to give it a whack, right? Um, So you could use that as a guide, but start small, add on good performance over time, Build your positions based on say best buys nows and things like that, or re recommendations is is how I I view it, um, and and then you want to own at least say fifteen to twenty at the minimum. The more you own, the better it is because it diversifies, and you want that diversification because again, if you're going to be right only four or five times mm. out of ten, you're just increasing your odds of getting those winners that are going to be there among that four out of ten or five out of ten, uh, right? By just batting more often mm, right. mm. so those are sort of some guidelines as to how we think nice about, about I like this, that. this mate one of the one of the hardest things I think I find with a little bit for my own portfolio but I feel like I'm recently across it but certainly to help our listeners and our members um, 
manage their own portfolios. You talk about percentage, I think that's exactly the right thing to do. Like it's exactly the right thing to do. But the hardest part I think for me is you have to also think longitudinally because percentage of what I have now is one question, but percentage of what I might have in future is a whole different question again. This is where percentages kind of get a bit hard, right? Because what's a small position? Well, if I've got one stock and I buy another one with the same money, then I've got you know half my portfolio of two stocks. On the other hand, if I know I'm going to invest for 40 years and I'm going to invest every month for 40 years, then I've got 480 different portions of my portfolio I can think about. And so one month's worth of cash, the $1,000 for Monica, if it's one 480th of her investment you know, future, then that's a really small portion. But if it's, you know, if it's, if it's, she's going to put in $1,000 every six months for five years, then that's a big number. And you're right to say that's why we can't say the dollar amount is right, Monica, for you. I would say, by the way, I think about brokerage as a percentage of your of your cost, of course. So that's one thing I would think about in terms of minimal uh, minimum investments. But Doc, I think that's, that, for me, that's the hardest thing. I'm trying to think forward and saying, well, if I kind of, you know, buy allocations now or later, do I do I buy thinking, well, I know I'm going to invest 480 times in the next 40 years so I can put all this money to one stock and add another one, another one, another one in 480 different transactions? Or do you kind of say, well, I want to be diversified quickly, so I want to get, you know, smaller portions of 20 companies up front over the next six months and then kind of add bits and pieces of those as I go through the rest of my life and then sell some, buy some. The, the kind of portfolio management ongoing, particularly as your portfolio gets larger, you know, if I've got to pick someone who's, 55 with a half million dollar portfolio, if I'm adding $1,000 to that portfolio, it doesn't touch the size. It almost doesn't matter what I buy at one level. Whatever it's currently in the portfolio is far, far more impactful than what I might add. On the other hand, if you're starting, you're putting a second $1,000 lot in, it's a big difference. How, how do you think about that? Yeah, so uh, so again, percentage, like a couple of different ways to think about this. So, so percentage of your current value is still okay in my view, right? Because if you you have, let's say, you know, $100,000 portfolio, you look at 1% position, that 1% is still 1% and therefore can have a, a you know, the 1% impact, right? If the 1% becomes a 10-bagger, it has a certain impact. If the 1% becomes a, you know, becomes, you know, smaller by 50%, it has another impact, right? Um, and then over time, as you get, you know, because everybody's probably adding money periodically, right? So when they have mm-hmm. some savings, and then when you have some extra cash to invest, you again think about that as, okay, well, I've got this much, what do I do with it, right? And then you you continue doing that. And there's nothing that stops you from um, from investing the additional cash that is coming in into different companies or into the same company as as you're building your portfolio, mm-hmm. right? So so that's how I, I do it then. So and then the other thing I guess you can think about is, um, is impact. So mm-hmm. if, you're po- if you've got a fully made portfolio and you're adding a 1% position, mm. That one percent position, if it's only going to, if you're adding it because it's going to be market beating by two percent, it has actually meaning. It's actually meaningless. Right. right exactly. Yeah. 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 So that's right. At at some point, you have to make the decision that either you're going to invest substantial mm. amount, mm. which means mm. you have to sell something mm. to invest, which is always a hard decision. Yeah. Or yeah. You could change your focus to say, okay, I'm going to add a new position mm. only if. A new holding makes sense if it can have a huge multi-bag potential. So, mm, mm, like mm. I use it personally right now, I, I look at a position and I'll say, okay, if this can't deliver me a 6 to 10x in 10 years, mm, I'm not adding mm. it. 
because right, then okay. because then it makes no difference to my portfolio. Then I'm at you know well, yeah, yeah. what do I do with it? I just add yeah. it to something yeah. I already own. So for for a new position to have an outsized impact, yeah. it needs to be. Now you could say that the question might be, well, why didn't you sell your other holdings right, that right. are running at a certain rate and are probably going to give you market re, you know market beating by let's say a couple of percentage points? The rationale often is that you know it's, it's a, if it is outside. Uh, if it's a taxable account, then if you know every time you sell something, if you have held it for a while, it means that you're going to be paying capital gains tax. You pay capital gains tax, and then you have to reinvest it. Now you have to make returns on top of that. So you have to make returns post the tax, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So that just increases the hurdle. Um, so sometimes the safer thing to do is that if you've got a market beating returns potentially uh, into the future, then just leave it, and then just find. Uh, you know, I guess larger upside ideas, and then you you can invest small amounts. So there are many different ways in which you can you can do different things. Um, so again, it depends on really what your own personal mm. preferences. It's a hard one, isn't it? I yeah, I funny because I'm thinking, and this this is why it's so stupidly complex, and it's even harder to try and discuss in audio rather than rather than examples and that kind of stuff. But even to your point, put, putting money in a position you already hold is still equally as unimpactful. Um, because it's still that, that, that new dollar you're adding rather than the current position. You can have a $50,000 position adding $1,000 to it or $1,000 something else. That same $1,000 is only going to uh, you know, grow by whatever the, the return is. So I think to your point, putting it amongst behind your best idea is the, is the right one to do. The other thing I think about too as you get older and adding more is taking larger chunks or building larger chunks in either a new or existing position. So rather than thinking about a $1,000 investment on a fifty five hundred thousand dollar portfolio for example and again first class problem to have right if you're trying to work that out um, but you know rather than thinking about that specifically and saying what can this thousand dollars do you might say well i'm going to spend the next year putting all of my money into this new position so i get a twelve thousand dollar position or, or whatever how long it takes you to get that money in um it, it's, it's all about scale and size and i think that's the other thing doc is as you rightly point out it's hard to know what to sell and when to sell it but as you get older as you have a, a, a as you get closer to retirement your portfolio gets bigger those are some of the decisions you actually do have to make. You're going to have to confront those questions of, I've got no more new money coming in. If I want to make a, if I think this company, and then maybe it's the other way around, rather than what do I put this money, you start with, hang on, I think this new company I've thought of is such a great idea. I want it to be a meaningful part of my portfolio. So I'm going to have to find something to sell. And you need to go and do that if you think it's a meaningful outperformer relative to what you already own. So if I've, if I go to the point where I've got BHP in my portfolio, I look at Woolies and go, man, I'm so sure Woolies going to be better than BHP. I can add a small, tiny amount to it, or I can say to myself, well, if that's the case, maybe I should sell some or all my BHP and really build a meaningful position in Woolies because I think it's going to be a better stock. Fair to say? Yeah, I think that's fair. Also fair to say that you're not going to buy another Woolies or BHP, neither no. am I. All right, let's get a question from Siegfried. Hi, Scott and Doc. I love listening to the two of you while I drive to and from work. Keeps me awake after long shifts. Siegfried, I can't tell you how exciting it is because I'm always fearful we're putting people to sleep. But if we're keeping you awake, that's a good thing. And hopefully you've just uh, set Bolt upright and we're keeping you even more awake as you uh, as just your own question being answered. By the way, stay safe on the road. If you if you need to be kept awake, maybe you're a shift worker or you're working, uh, you're working late at night, Matt said, please do, do the right thing. Look after yourself. Um, we need all the witnesses we can get, quite frankly, but also we do, we do care about you. All right. He says, hopefully I can get a question answered, please. Yes, you can. He says, what is, what is it about bloody your members, Doc? And he says, I'm a member of EO, by the way. Great picks so far, Doc. Yeah, fine. There are other services, Siegfried. all I'm saying. I'm just saying share advisor is, you know, it's not nothing. Anyway, I received an email. Oh, sorry, mail. Mail from NAB about capital notes. This is the hybrid discussion coming back that we talked about. Can you explain it in English, please? The wording sounds like, quotes, give us your money, but we may or may not give it back, end quote. <laughs> I love that. 
So I'm gonna I'm gonna have a go, Doc, and you can you can chime in. Um, Siegfried, I, I was gonna oh, say go my on. answer is very simple. <laughs> What's that? I don't even look at those. <laughs> <laughs> Problem solved. <laughs> Problem solved. In that case, Doc, you answer the question, okay? Um, I just did. <laughs> look at them. <laughs> so he's the, so, so a really super quick background. Banks have certain requirements because they're banks, not just any other listed company. The regulators require them to hold a certain amount of money in reserve. Uh, and it's generally called regulated capital. There are other terms for it. But effectively, what the bank, what the regulators say is, look, you guys take a little bit of money, you lend a lot out. You are super risky both individually and to the system because they're leveraged dramatically. Like the amount of debt they have. I mean, they're a debt. That's, what they're, that's their business, right? So it's not a surprise. But we talk about debt levels on other companies. These guys these guys live on debt. Debt is their, is their cash is their inventory, right? It's literally their product. So they have just mountains and mountains of debt. So the, the, the regulators say, look, you can do that, but you need to keep a certain amount of capital in the background, just in case, just in case your debts go bad, just in case there's a run on the bank, just in case the system goes to pot, we want you to have some cash or capital, not cash, capital stored away somewhere for a rainy day. Um, and there's different tier, capital T1 ratios and all that kind of stuff. But just for the sake of the exercise, we'll keep it really, really broad. As part of that, the regulators have allowed them to issue things called capital notes, hybrid securities, income securities. I think they're all the only terms I can think of. Again, they've got a range of, of names. And these are, as the name suggests, hybrid securities because they're kind of a mix of debt and equity. So debt being obviously debt, equity being another one named for shares. So these things have components of both. Now, the reason they exist is frankly because the regulators allow them to use this stuff as regulated capital. In a way, they wouldn't if they had other assets like pure debt. So they, they've kind of created, you've got to love financial engineering, don't you? You've got to love these. There are some clever people, and I say clever, partly in aberration, partly with, in, with skepticism and cynicism. Uh, someone will always find a way around something, right? That's why consultants are so highly paid. So they invented these things called capital notes or hybrid securities or income securities. And the whole idea was they'd give you a little bit better return than cash in the bank. So it's kind of a, yeah, it's kind of term deposit-ish, at least that's what they want you to think. But you're also risking that money in a way that you wouldn't risk if it was cash in the bank. So you're kind of getting more income than if you owned just shares, but you're getting you're taking more risk than if you just owned a term deposit. And that's why it sits kind of in that spot, as Doc said at the very top, somewhere between debt and equity in the, in the, in the capital structure. Again, to use that horrible cliched term. So that's where we start. And it makes some sense, right? Get it, get it, get it. The challenge, I think you've identified it perfectly, Siegfried, is give us your money, we may not give it back, is exactly that. People, These are sold as higher income than term deposits, so you should invest in them. But they tend to be, A, they don't carry franken credits, generally speaking, though some may, uh, and they are riskier than cash in the bank. So you kind of you are making a trade-off, and they don't necessarily, you know, they have all the appropriate disclaimers and stuff. I'm not saying they do anything wrong. They're not. Um, and it's not just NAB, by the way. It's all the banks. But they're doing it in such a way that you kind of they try to make it really attractive to you. Hey, do this because this is better than, than something else. And it is. I take your view, Sigrid. I think while they're slightly better than turn deposits in some ways and better than shares in others, they are worse than turn deposits in some ways and worse than shares in others. My view is you're taking share-like risk because you're about to get the money back. In other words, you're, you're kind of like a shareholder equivalent, but you don't get any capital growth. Now, we can argue about whether NAB is going to give you capital growth at all, and Doc certainly has been a little bit clear on that, I think, so far this podcast. He's smiling, by the way. Um, so, you know, it, fr- frankly, the hybrid notes might be better than the, the bank shares if the shares go nowhere. That's also true, by the way. But I think what this gives you is it gives you none of the upside of shares, in other words, no capital growth, and none of the upside of term deposits because you your money's not secure, it's not safe, it's not government guaranteed. So to me, it literally, yes, it's better than both. It's also worse than both. Um, so my view would be, I think, a diversified portfolio of shares where you get upside potential, to my mind, is far better 
than taking these hybrid notes. I'd never recommend them. I don't think I would. There are some small circumstances without getting super esoteric where sometimes they have in the past traded for super discounts um, because they have a face value like a um, like a bond. Uh, and so some people have made money buying these things with our $100 instruments that were currently trading for $41. So in the secondary market, on the, on the market, sometimes there's an opportunity for, to buy them and get a good deal just as an enterprising investor. Um, but as a general idea, structurally, I don't like them at all. And Doc doesn't even look at them. So I'm going to assume he either, well, I'm not going to assume he doesn't like them. I'm just going to say he's not going to really help us to understand them any better. Is that is that fair to say, Doc? It's absolutely fair. Like, I, mean, I, I, mean, right. I mean, I don't look at NABs, NAB, <laughs> so why would I look at their um, hybrids? But yeah, like I mean, I understand. So other people look at it, and that's good. It's just not my thing. So. Nice. Now, I've got a question from Sam now. Sam asked a question, which I kind of appreciate at one level. On the other level, I do worry a little bit uh, because uh, he's pretty much saying, look, I want other stuff, not you guys. So Sam says, hey, Scott and Doc, love the podcast. He starts that way, but let's see where it goes. Started getting into it mid-year and each week look forward to listening and gaining some valuable insight. Thank you, mate. Fascinated by the psychology behind investing. I'm a subscriber to both EO and SA as I couldn't play favorites. See, Sam, that's what we like. Well, you're building a good credit here anyway. I'm going to ask you a question. Anyway, he says, my question is, as a new, a relatively new investor, I still lack a lot of the fundamental skills when it comes to being able to value stocks, understand the market and market value, and finding good reliable, easy to understand business news. So I'm wondering if you're able to recommend any other podcasts in particular, I'm a big fan of podcasts, he says, or resources that would complement the TMF podcast and provide me with a broader understanding of the basics of investing and or a good daily, weekly business news podcast that I can add into my daily routine to expand my knowledge. Interested to hear what you guys listen to and where you get your info. Cheers, legends. Keep up the good work. That's from Sam. All right, Sam, I'll, I'll assume you're saying as well as, rather than instead of. So we will answer your question, mate. Just make sure you don't give up on us if you find something else. Um, your thoughts, Doc. Other other resources, other podcasts, general reading. Um, where would Sam or someone in Sam's position, a relatively new investor, go to get some useful market insight and build his investment knowledge? I'm reading some books about the market, I think, um, could be useful. Mm-hmm. Uh, just understanding how the market operates, what you know, what are the different types of markets, and and, and so on. So that there will be lots of you know beginners introduction to the share market or or the financial markets in general. I think that's a useful background to have. That'll be one of the things. Um, what else can I suggest? You know, reading the news. So whether it's mm-hmm. the uh, the Fin or uh, or the Wall Street Journal or something mm-hmm. like that. Uh, those sort of things give you general idea of what's going on in the world uh, finance. That's another thing, and again, some of this is just accumulated knowledge, right? So you accumulate knowledge over time. Um, reading, uh, reading, a, you know, books on, uh, or at least one or two books on behavioral investing, I think, would be useful to understand sort of the psychology behind uh, investing and the common traps that people fall into, um, common biases that people have. And when I say people, I mean everyone has. So you, you sort of try to work around them. So that, that sort of thing um, it would be useful. Some books and fundamental approaches to investing. Mm. Um, you know, so there's this book by the little book that builds wealth, for example. It's a very it's good, isn't it? or, yeah, it's a very very good book. Mm-hmm. It's a very Warren Buffett style investing. So it might not work mm. for uh, everything, but it it's mm. still I think as as a principle. Um, as an approach to sort of understanding business, I think it's very good. Um, so that's sort of, you know, uh, it's harder to apply some of those ideas to, you know, new gen, you mm. know, software style businesses and things like that. But 
you could still you could actually you could still modify them to work for. So I think the general principles apply, and it's actually a fantastically written, well written book. So I, I mm. love that book. Um, what else can I suggest? Um, reading about evolution of different things. So mm-hmm. um, reading a bit about economics, you know, um, is is useful. So as a, is mm. a you know capitalism without capitalism book I've mentioned a few times. I think that's a, it's an interesting book to read uh, to understand how the world sort of is changing. Mm. So sort of those sort of things, uh, and you can't expect. I think the, the bottom line for me is you just don't expect um, to know everything. Well, nobody knows everything. That's number one. But to know more mm. very quickly, mm. I think um, you you learn more over time mm. and slowly. As long as you you know, and the key is to assimilate things that you learn, and then and 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 be willing to relearn things, and unlearn and relearn and learn new things over time. So that's what I would say. That's a good one, Doc. Um, yeah, look, I. It's funny, isn't it? Like, I think where, where did you learn most of your investing, mate? Like, you're the fundamentals of your investing approach. Did you, did you did it evolve? Did you start at the right place? Have you always been this way as an investor? How, how did you kind of get your skill set up to up to speed? Well, like, you know, honestly, I think my investing has evolved a lot, mm, right? Mm. And I, I think, okay, so personally for me, mm. um, there was a way I used to invest before I joined The Fool. Mm-hmm. And I, I have no shame in saying this. After I joined The Fool, I've learned a lot actually but just – from my colleagues and from okay. people around me, and, right, right. and and you can learn, you know, you can learn from people's successes. You can learn mm, from people's mm, mistakes mm. because everybody has successes and mistakes, right? It's pretty uniform. Mm. Um, and, and then there, there are ways you can you can sort of take that yeah. and and then make it. I think making things your own is part of the thing, and then just reading widely is mm, what I'd say. Mm. And I'd say that you know my own style of investing has evolved over time and Mm -hmm. I'm sure that's the same is true for the style of investing evolves over time for almost everyone right and so I think it's a mixture of books and um, reading disparate resources I I think you know I I can understand what he's where he's getting at it you you start off Mm. and your immediate desire is I want to know a lot about how everything works Mm. and there is no one definitive source or guide for yeah, for that thing, hard, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, and therefore it seems like you're in the sea and you're swimming and you don't really know which direction the current is flowing and mm, you know, which direction mm, you're swimming. You're swimming against the current with the current, and and you know uh, it, it just seems hard. And I think it just becomes easier mm, and mm, easier mm. over time. Uh, the the other thing I'll add is as you look at I think as you look at more and more companies, mm. you just you, you almost it's like Spidey senses right you just, yeah right but you just look at things and okay okay that one yeah right like that, yeah. <laughs> seems like that <laughs> this one seems like, so you you build yeah. pattern recognition skills that, right so you've got the heuristic you start, over time you start you start to learn the things that matter or the business that look like things that you've seen in the past or, or, or yeah. attributes that are common across different businesses yeah and 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 then you evolve them and refine them and you mm, change mm, them mm. so there's no you know I, I think the only thing i'll guard against is there's any, there's no such thing as a constant so you want to modify that <laughs> uh over time yeah and 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 then things play, things don't play out mm-hmm. immediately. Mm-hmm. Things take time to play out. So yeah. you have to, yeah. Um, yeah. I think those are. I guess the one thing I'll mm-hmm. say is, and this I'm just saying this again. The other thing is that you can you can use your experience if you have experience in other fields. That experience can actually come in handy. So for example, things that I've seen in tech that people have worked in um, in academia mm. or in 
you know, things that are not yet out there sort of in the real world. Okay. Yes, there's a lag. There's always yeah, a yeah, lag of, yeah. let's say, you know, there's, there's, there are things that people t- start talking about and then there's probably a five-year lag before it shows up mm-hmm. in the industry. Mm-hmm. Right? And you can almost see that happening. But, it, that you know, because there's a five, six-year lag, it might appear that you wouldn't realize that it's happening unless you give it enough time. Right, right, right. right? Yeah, 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 so yeah, over yeah. a period of a decade, you can say, okay, now if you think about mm, over a decade mm. or two decades, you say, okay, that happened mm. first, then this happened, then that got realized, and, and so on and so forth, right? So you, And then you can sort of apply that more broadly. To, so that's pattern recognition of one nice. another form. Yeah. Um, so it's, again, I think it's just, I think the base, like, like in investing, everything is about time. So mm-hmm, if you allow mm-hmm. time, uh, at, and you invest your time into it and you allow your yep. companies to do yep. the thing yep. and you allow yourself to grow, I think over time things will just happen. Yeah, nice. I like that. So I, look, to answer your question, Sam, I, like, so investing specifically, I I started as a super, you know, kind of value investor. I wanted to calculate, I've said before, every every number, I think I had 60 different metrics I was calculating and you know, felt like I was somehow getting somewhere. Um, and to Doc's point, you start to refine that over time and try and work out what actually really does matter. I'm also putting a bit more focus on the future rather than the past. I would still, despite Doc's probably protestations, although maybe he might be a little more sanguine this morning, I'm not sure. Um, I would, I, I would, you know, the, the essays of Warren Buffett, I think, are compelling reading for most investors as a starting point, as a base. Now, whether you want to invest like Buffett is a really different thing, but to think about business, to think about investing, to think about the kind of process of what we do and how we do it, I still can't beat that. Um, I also think, by the way, Buffett is less a value guy than he used to be. Though still, obviously, not investing in tech and still uh, behind the curve on tech. I think that's also fair. Um, so I think starting with that is, is super, super useful. Just to, just to give you a really solid base from a known, trusted person who doesn't have any vested interest in cutting through the crap. I think the Buffett letters, the essays of Warren Buffett. It's basically his shareholder letters, all in in. It is a book. It's in um, topic rather than by by chronologically. So it gives you a sense of his thinking over time as well as uh, as well as more currently. So I would I would start there for sure. Little book that builds wealth as doc says i think it's a great way to go i think that's a really really smart small short read little book of behavioral investing i've also banged on about before but i'll add that one i think it's a must 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 read um that'll help your behavioral investing side i think to understand business as doc says media is great i would counsel you against being too caught up in the day-to-day stuff don't don't get caught up in the the what the the, the political journalists call race calling um you, you want to be learning the, the lessons and the themes not trying to digest the latest bits and pieces when you come into choosing companies the news is great. Like what's going on, what's driving, what's changing. That's really useful. To learn about the fundamentals of investing, I'd start there. I think it's a really useful place to start to try and understand what it might look like. Um, I will say too, even though Doc doesn't use it, I don't think at all, I think I've used it really sparingly. The concept of things like discounted cash flow is really, really useful because it kind of gives you a sense of how a company should be valued over the longest period of time, even if you never use it. Just the idea of like when you say, you know, how to value a stock, whether you're a, you know, I'm not of us are three decimal places valuers, doc much less than me, but even me, I'd look at something and say, look, can I justify this price? It's got to have some future value baked into that price, right? Doc says Tesla can be X times the size. That's good enough because X times the size of the current price gives you plenty of upside. If I'm looking at something smaller or, or with less growth, I've got to make sure that I think today's price gives me a market beating return over the future. And that's got to be some sense of 
do I think the market is paying too little for this company based on its future? That's always an effort what we're asking. So that, that can be harder. I have no really good answer for that. I think Doc's point about kind of adding, you know, learning over time. Investing is awesome because the longer you do it, the better you get or the better you should get if, you, if you're paying attention because you learn more stuff and you add more stuff to that kind of, it becomes subconscious at some level. Um, and just the accumulated knowledge you get, the accumulated experiences you have, just, you know, get started, learn as you go, work out what works, what doesn't. Um, Podcast-wise, business, I don't know. I, I I quite like Masters in Business as a general podcast. Some of them are really boring and dry. Or not really boring, I shouldn't say that. Some of them are drier than others. And some of them, and he knows, he'll talk about really wonky, nerdy conversation about some things. Other things are really useful. That That's a, a podcast I like most of the episodes of. Um, I listen to Freakonomics, which I think is interesting, but not super investing specific. Planet Money, similarly. Super, uh, money and, and finance, not obviously straight investing. Um, invest Like the Best is a bit nerdy. But actually, I guess a lot of good concepts for Invest Like the Best, particularly some of the companies Doc likes. Um, uh, Patrick O'Shaughnessy there does have some really cool guests who talk a lot about some of the growthy stuff. He's a he's a, a VC investor, investment uh, manager. Um, so he, he, he kind of gives some good stuff on that as well. Anything else, Doc? I can't think of anything else. You got any other thoughts coming to mind? No, I, th- I think those are good, great ideas. Um, uh, sorry, we'll go back to – we've talked about this a lot, Sam, and so other listeners have probably heard this. Maybe you heard this as well. Um, grab one up on Wall Street. Grab – Common stocks and uncommon profits. They're super old. Uh, the examples will be old, but the, the timeless lessons there are really, really strong. And that's a re- they're two really nicely set out books to help you understand some of how those guys invested and what they've done well. Um, Lynch, who wrote One Up on Wall Street, famed fund manager, incredibly well for more than a decade. Um, uh, Phil Fisher is Buffett these days is described as, uh, as half half Ben Graham, his original mentor from the 40s and 30s, uh, 50s, uh, and part Phil Fisher. So the growthier part of Buffett comes from Phil Fisher. Fisher's not going to be, you know, 2020 growth. Um, the growth he talks about may be a little bit quaint even, but the as foundational texts, even if you don't agree with it all, just understand the concepts there I think are super useful. That sounds fair, Doc? I have nothing to add. You're a good man. All right. One last question. We've got time for one more. This is from Nick. Man, I've got so many I haven't got to yet, Doc. Apologies for everyone who I haven't got to yet. Some great companies, great questions. I will get to them. We will get to them, I promise. Nick says, G'day, Scott. Another one for the podcast. Then he says, insert your own rave reviews and podcast ratings here. So here we go. Nick says, this is the best podcast I've ever listened to in my entire life. It deserves seven ratings. and I would pay $4,000 a year just to listen to it. By the way, Scott and Doc are the funniest and most attractive blokes I know. Wow. Thanks, Nick. That's really kind. All right. Uh, he says, my questions are around juggling having a share portfolio, a decent amount of cash, and wanting to buy my first home. It's to live in, not as an investment. To frame the scenario and make the maths easy, let's say I have 100 grand in, in shares, 100 grand in cash, and I'm wanting to buy a million dollar property in a couple of years. So there we go. 100 grand in shares, 100 grand in cash, wants to buy a million property in a couple of years. That means if I were to sell my shares today, I'd have a 20% deposit. I obviously would rather not sell my shares at all as I'm foolishly in it for the long term. However, if I'm selling them to buy a house, I'll hopefully live in for 10 to 20, over 20 to 30 years. Does that matter? Do banks perhaps consider a share portfolio as part of your deposit so I can have the best of both worlds and not have to sell my shares but still have a 20% air quotes deposit? That's from Nick. Doc, do you want first go on that one? I'm going to say that, Nick, I, I feel your pain. This is one of the reasons <laughs> I bang on about why um, a high property price with high debt is bad <laughs> for society. It's like terrible. And this is a perfect example of why it is terrible. Uh, I don't have a good solution for this. Um, but 
yeah, I, I feel your pain and this shouldn't be the case, but it is. Uh, there's no reason, as I, as, I, uh, as I like to say, that there's no reason why uh, ordinary people have to buy property worth a million dollars to just live. This is just <laughs> insane. So, this, you know, if somebody wants to fix something, you know, you, you try to fix this and I'll give you my vote. There you go. Um, I, <laughs> we can't solve the policy problem for you, Nick, so I will try and give you some pragmatic views, but I don't necessarily disagree with Doc. Um, the banks won't consider your shares deposit. Uh, they might, they will consider it as part of your savings history, and so hopefully you'll be seen as a better risk than others might be, or maybe you might have otherwise been seen. So that's positive, but unfortunately, they're not going to let you offset that because you could sell the shares tomorrow, go to cash, and splurge it all on a boat and leave the country. So they're not going to they're not going to take that unfortunately as deposit in the same way, but it will help your your assessment of your of your loan. So there's that. I here's the thing, mate. Um, you're really looking for so there's there's two things. If you have a twenty percent deposit, the other thing you'll probably get is you won't have to pay lenders mortgage insurance, and so the tw- the eighty percent line is normally the line between whether you have to pay lenders mortgage insurance or not, uh, and that is a meaningful chunk of cash. I don't even remember how much it is these days, doc, but it's a good few thousand dollars at least. Um, so you, you if you don't have eighty percent as a twenty percent deposit, you'll have to pay lenders mortgage insurance, and that's by the way insuring the the bank, not you, but you have to pay the premium. How good's that? Uh, so be mindful of that. That will, that will sting you. Uh, I you, you, you also get a poorer rate. That the banks, you know, typically, the banks will give you a better deal if you put down more. Yep, 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 right. yep, yep, yep. I think that's true. Uh, no, not always. So be, be mindful of how much you're getting. So those those are considerations. I can't tell you what you should do, Nick. What I would say for myself is, if I was in your position, I'm pretty sure I would pay the minimum possible deposit and let my shares compound as long as I had access to those shares in the worst case scenario, i.e. effectively a rainy day account. If you lose your job, you get sick or something else happens. So that's important. Um, and as long as you're not paying, as Doc said, either a meaningfully higher lender's mortgage insurance or interest rate because I would expect in my own portfolio, speaking for me only, if I can borrow at 2 point something percent, maybe even 1.99% fixed, I reckon I could do better with 100 grand left in shares. I might be able to compound it at, I don't know, 5, 8, 10% a year, something like that. Uh, maybe more if you're lucky, but, you know, living, even using those numbers. If I can compound at 10% or 8%, let's choose 8, be conservative. If I can compound at 8%, but I can borrow at 2, it's a pretty easy decision for me. I, I'm going to make more money over time doing both. Um, so I would I would absolutely do that personally, as long as it's not putting you under financial stress, i.e. if something goes wrong, you've, you can't deal with it. Or if you have a situation where you can't possibly meet a um sorry you're paying more for the for the loan so if you've got to pay 2.4 percent rather than two uh even then frankly i probably would still think about it because the math is pretty straightforward i think so make sure you got a rainy day account make sure you're not putting yourself under financial stress and then just do the maths but i i would expect that the interest you pay over the next 30 years on your home at if you borrow 90 percent rather than 80 percent will be less than the, the extra interest anyway the, the return you get uh from the 100 grand invested in the share market if that's true then purely mathematically you're better in the share market. Now, last one for me, we say that, both Doc and I, at least I know from past experience, Doc said this is uh, on the podcast, and I've certainly, I think, said the same thing. We both actually have more money in our offset accounts than we mathematically, rationally, would or could have because we choose to feel more comfortable in our own in, in our own personal financial lives. And so the mathematical, I have more money in my offset than I mathematically should if I was only caring about maximizing my dollar potential return as opposed to living the best possible quality life. And they have different things as well. So always consider how comfortable you feel about whatever decision you make. There is zero harm, mate, in leaving the 100 grand in the house, in the in the, the home loan, 
and just simply feeling better about it because you're further ahead of the mortgage, you're paying less interest, you're less exposed to risk or, or, or financial stress. So um, whichever of those makes more sense, there is a rational answer and there is an answer that is gives you your best life and I would go with the best life solution every time. Any more on that, Doc? The best solution is for property to be cheaper <laughs> by 30%. I, uh, like yes. Imagine 30% cheaper and then, you know, Nick would be uh, only paying $700,000 for the house. Everybody would be ahead. The best solution Boom. to me would be someone give me a million dollars and buy a house for cash, but that's not going to happen either. So. Well, the, the best solution could be, <laughs> or, or alternatively, if the government really likes the house prices to go up, maybe they should just buy that. us the houses. That'd be nice. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll take get, a free I'll get behind one. that. Uh, right. It's a free, I'll take a free $1.5 million. <laughs> well, if it's free, is it really $1.5 million? Well, but it's one, but somebody's going to pay, right? The government is paying. Oh, I see. They're actually buying the house for you. Yeah, well, maybe Governor okay. Law can pay. There you go. Don't, right, he can deal. pay. I'm sure if you ask nicely, he'd love to. You, you've said nice things about him. T- you must be his favorite person. Of course. Like, I mean, you know, <laughs> you, the worst thing you could do is just put make the rates go to minus two something, and then you can have the house. I think we're done. Okay. Now, Monica asked, mate, so I can't disappoint Monica. I have to let her know that she can join Motley Fool Share Advisor by going to fool.com.au forward slash SA podcast. Motley Fool Share Advisor is our flagship service run by myself. Flagship, we say that basically because it's our first one, so I get to say that, but you know, it's no better than the others. It's just really good, I think. I like it. We're beating the market. We hope to continue to do so in the medium and large cap sector, trying to find the best, usually growth stocks we can find, though we do fish pretty much anywhere. I run that with Andrew Leggett, a good uh, friend and colleague of ours. Um, we do our best to try and find you the best medium and large cap stocks we can on the ASX that are beating the market. And so far, so good. We've done a pretty good job. We're about 22 points ahead of the market on average, last I looked, which was yesterday. Um, but, you know, past points are no guarantee, as I say. In other words, anyway, if you want to join Multiple Share Advisor, I think you should. I think you should join EO as well. But give him Monica Rastock for a change. I'm going to give myself a wrap. Go to fool.com.au forward slash SA podcast to get a really cheap deal on joining one of, well, it's definitely one of the best investment services I run. Put it that way. <laughs> All right. I, I love that line. <laughs> Did you like that? <laughs> That's fantastic. It's, it's, the best, it's the best service called Share Advisor that I've ever run. Put it that way. No. Uh, look, we are, we're, yeah, we're doing reasonably well. We are beating the market. Again, past performance is no guarantee. But um, but yeah, if, you, if you're keen to find, yeah, do both. Do both. Get both. As, as the cool kids say, why not both? So there you go. Fool.com.au forward slash SA podcast. Come and join me at Share Advisor. It's fun. You'll like it. Maybe you make some money as well. All right, mate. We're done. That was a fun podcast. That was great. I enjoyed that. Time to go and enjoy our Sunday. You, you know uh, what I liked about that podcast? The last go question on. about was about housing. That's fantastic. <laughs> so I, I, I'm, I'm totally in favor of Nick. Anytime you get to rant about housing, mate, you're a happy man. I know that for sure. So thank you, Nick. All right, we're done. Before you go, don't forget to subscribe to the Triple M Motley for Money podcast through iTunes, your favorite Android podcast app, or the Podcast One app, of course. And if you like what we're doing, please give us a rating. Five stars would be lovely. Please tell your friends, as I've always said, skyride it, but don't tattoo it on your body. We're not those sort of people. And of course, don't forget, you can get a dose of foolishness and some money marketing of our best prices straight to your inbox by going to fool.com.au forward slash triple m triple m that's it for this week's motley fool money we'll be back on friday with another dose of foolish insight full on full on the motley fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned general advice only please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple m the motley fool operates under financial services license 400691